and then suddenly you meet something which is completely out of this world. You stop for a second and you start thinking, oh, maybe there is life out there and maybe uh, it developed somewhat differently or maybe it developed in a similar way and what kind of problems we might have in common or, or not. Is there other habitable planets at all in at least the vicinity of the solar system? Are we unique in that respect? And what are the consequences of our actions as humanity? Do we handle our planet properly? Something that you don't think of frequently in your daily routine and so on. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Nikolai Piskunov, professor at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Uppsala University. His specialty is astronomy, and he is associated to SCAS by being responsible for the theme Exoplanets and Biological Activities on Other Worlds within the Natural Science Program here at SCAS. And as you might have guessed by now, this is another episode in the theme Life in Outer Space on SCAS Talks. And this time we are going on a search for habitable planets. Welcome to SCAS Talks, Nikolai. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thank you. I'm coming from uh, Russia, graduated from Moscow University when I was 22, 23. Got my PhD also in uh, Soviet Union at the time, so Estonia. Then traveled the world, worked in Finland, in Canada, in the US, and ended up in Sweden some 25, 26 years ago. Yes, so thank you very much for joining SCAS Talks. It will be exciting to hear more about your research today. So very broadly, before we go into any details, what is your research about? So the first exoplanets have been discovered uh, some 25 years ago, 26 years ago. And since then, first, the focus was on covering more and more. And there is still quite a bit of activity dedicated to discovery of new exoplanets. And probably we'll touch upon why this is interesting. But in parallel, there is a new direction of study of exoplanets that is trying to understand which exoplanets can have more similar conditions to what we have on Earth in the sense that they are capable of supporting biological activities on their surface and hopefully will, this will be prerequisite for finding habitable planets. And maybe even life. Maybe even life, yes, possibly. So that's the second part that I'm mostly interested in. And definitely the last 10 years of my work have been in this direction. Interesting. So we met earlier this week to talk about the content of this podcast episode a little bit. And you told me that 2021 is the year of science and technology in Russia. And you recently had a lecture there in this context and that there were 65,000 viewers online. That is very impressive. I hope some of those also listen to the podcast. Yeah, I was impressed as well. Fortunately, the actual physical auditorium was much smaller with some 50 people in there. And so I can focus on the immediate listeners present in the room. 
without thinking about 65,000. I didn't know about 65,000 until after the presentation. Yeah, because that's a stadium, right? It's that's an a arena. stadium, yes. Yes, yeah, so how do you explain this broad interest in society in, in this field? Well, I can see uh, multiple reasons why this attracts interest. One reason, which is frequently overlooked, is the fact that when you're doing your daily routine, you go to work, you handle your family, you handle your regular duties, and then suddenly you meet something which is completely out of this world. You stop for a second and you start thinking, oh, maybe there is life out there, and maybe uh, it developed somewhat differently, or maybe it developed in a similar way, and what kind of problems we might have in common or, or not. Is there other habitable planets at all in at least the vicinity of the solar system? Are we unique in that respect? And what are the consequences of our actions as humanity? Do we handle our planet properly? Something that you don't think of frequently in your daily routine and so on. So I think that's one reason. Of course, the other reason is that this type of research, because it's very motivating, to the people doing this research, it's also a very efficient way of developing new technologies. We cannot wait until somebody develops something. We have to do it now because it's so exciting, it's so interesting. That's another interesting aspect of this kind of development. Yeah, and that's also something that you've been involved in, in developing telescopes and techniques. I think we will talk about this a little bit later. So before we start to go into details, I'm thinking about some words and terminology to go through just so that everybody's on the same page and level. So first of all, the basics, the difference between stars and planets. Stars and planets, in principle, are formed at the same time from the same material, from gas and dust clouds in a fairly cold part of uh, cosmos, but... Stars are so massive that they compress material in their center due to simply pressure to such extent that nuclear reactions, nuclear fusion ignites. And so the core of those objects start generate energy. And so stars, in difference from planets, are sufficiently massive to sustain nuclear reactions in their cores under the, on the a long period of time. And so those reactions generate energy. That's why we see stars shining on the sky. We see the sun that produces lots of energy. And planets, while still fairly warm in, in their center due to various motions and uh, energy dissipation, are not uh, sustaining any nuclear reactions in their core. And that's the difference. And then we're going to talk a lot about exoplanets today. So what is an exoplanet? Yeah, exoplanet was a term coined to describe any planet outside the solar system. So any planet that is not gravitationally bound to the sun. That might explain why there are so many of them also. It's a big group. We're going to talk about uh, methods to discover exoplanets. And you mentioned two uh, when we met earlier. And that was radial velocity and the transit method. And I thought maybe you can just talk our listeners through briefly what these methods are and how they work. Radial velocity was the method that discovered their first exoplanet. The idea is that if you have a planet and a star 
which are gravitationally bound, then they move, each of them is moving on an orbit around common center of gravity. And of course, the star is uh, much more massive than a planet, and that means that the orbit and the orbital velocity of the star is much smaller than that of the planet. But it's still not zero. And because it's not zero, and because a star emits energy, we can look at the variations of velocity relative to us of this star. This is called radial velocity, so velocity along the line of sight. This velocity changes as the star goes around its period, and the changes are really subtle, and so we continuously struggling to develop more and more precise equipment and instrumentation to detect those measurements. But just to name the progress, in the last 25 years, the precision went from something like 15 meters per second which is you know, about uh, 55 kilometers an hour, to 30 centimeters per second. That's the current standard. And the next generation, which is in production already, is aiming at better than 10 centimeters per second. The other method is a transit method. And in the lucky situation where the plane of the orbit of a planet happens to coincide with the line of sight, so contain the line of sight from us to the star, at some part of the orbit, the planet will appear to go in front of the star. So that's called transit. The net result will be that the brightness of the star will appear to decrease a little bit as the planet blocks some of the radiation. Again, this effect is subtle, and the smaller is the planet and the larger is the star, the effect becomes smaller. But we figured out how to make the measurements precise enough. And uh, we also understood that it's better done from space than from the ground to avoid the effect of Earth's atmosphere. What is difficult is that, of course, not all planetary systems have this lucky orientation. So to counteract this fact, we figured out that the corresponding telescopes should do a survey of many, many stars in the same time, and then uh, hoping that some of them will have the right orientation. And so, for example, missions like Kepler were looking at 140,000 stars for two years continuously, and then discovered some 6,000 candidates for transiting exoplanets. So... We talked a little bit now about methods for discovery, but some of these methods are older and some are newer. And some time ago, you didn't have any methods, but this was more of a theoretical discussion if there are other planets, other galaxies. So the existence of exoplanets has been discussed for a while prior to the actual discovery. So when you were a student, what was this discussion like then? And also when you started your research career, so to say? There were, of course, people who were excited to discuss the possibility of many stars having exoplanets and many habitable worlds out there, even in our galaxy. And there were attempts to put some theory behind this, uh, trying to figure out what is the probability of such events. And then there were, on the other hand, people that were saying, okay, if uh, according to your very theoretical theories, 
There should be many habitable worlds out there. Why don't we see them? Why didn't they contact us or came for a visit? And so probably there isn't any, and your theories are totally false. But then one aspect that I found fascinating at the time when I was a student, which came up at one of the seminars I, I remember, was at which distance the presence of a habitable world becomes irrelevant for us. I mean, clearly, if there is a civilization that lives on a planet on the other side of our galaxy, that will be theoretically interesting, but there will have no practical consequences whatsoever, because there will be no chance to travel there. There will be no chance of communicating. Think of signal that travels one way several thousand years. And then uh, by the time you get a response, there are so many generations that change on Earth, nobody remembers what the question was. So I think that's an interesting aspect, and it's an important one. If habitable worlds are sparse and far in between, then uh, perhaps we should reassess our role, our future, and our responsibility towards our planet and towards ourselves having not even slightest chance to get help or to get alternative habitable possibilities. Mm. It might be difficult to move somewhere else. Right. So the first exoplanet was discovered, as you said, in 1995 by Didier Quilos and Michel Mayor, who were then awarded with the Nobel Prize in 2019 for their discovery. Since the first discovery... The number of observed exoplanets has increased, you said it, to something around 6,000. So this fast development from 1 to 6,000 candidates, how has this fast development been possible? Let me tell you an interesting story. So how the first planet was discovered, Michel Mayor was building a new instrument, actually, that improved the precision in radio velocity by a factor of 20. His idea was that based on what we know from the solar system, it would take one year of observations to detect full period and variation of radio velocity. So uh, as a very logical professor, uh, Michel Mayor completed the instrument, handed the keys to the telescope in Haute-Provence, in south of France, to his uh, PhD student Didier, and left for sabbatical. He went to go you know, mountain climbing in southern Chile, in Patagonia. Two weeks later, Didier noticed that out of the 10 stars that were on his list of observations, there is clear periodic pattern in radio velocity variation in one of them, with a period of four and a half days. That was not possible, you know, clearly not possible. So he went through instrument, he looked at all possible variations. The confusing part for him was that why the other stars do not show any periodic variations, but only this one. He went through the software that Michel wrote, found a couple of bugs in the program, but that didn't help. There was still this periodic variation. And so two months later, after all these checks, Didier sends a telegram to Michel, because that was the only way of communicating, saying, I don't know what it is. It looks like a planet, but it cannot be a planet. And so here comes the crunch. Here comes the interesting part. 
After Michel came back earlier from his sabbatical, and they went through the tests, all the tests again, they actually contacted all other groups in the world that were in the same field, and there were four. And they said, apparently we have discovered a planet around this particular star. Could you people look at it and see if we are not imagining things? I think that's an excellent example how the science should be done. Instead of trying to hide and instead of trying to sort of keep everything in secret, they just went out and said, this is the star where we apparently see the planet. And so it took a year, but three out of four groups confirmed that indeed there is a signal, and then they published it. I thought this is an excellent example for you know, scientific attitude, the right academic ways of doing research. And now we have all these uh, candidates. So what has happened in the development? You mentioned the speed of observations and so on, but what more has been happening in the last 25 years? First, it was essentially only radio velocity measurements. And as I said, there were four groups that were doing it. Eventually, those four groups sort of created two constellations, one around Geneva University and one around the University of Berkeley, with the two fairly advanced instruments that uh, both groups produced. Now there is more. For example, Geneva Observatory has produced the first instrument uh, that was approaching radio velocity precision of one meter per second. And then since then, there were two copies of this instrument produced. And currently, the third copy is on its way, and I'm participating in that one. In uh, parallel, as we mentioned already before, the transit method was tested. In fact, it was tested with amateur telescope from a parking lot somewhere in Boston area. And uh, surprisingly, it worked. And uh, everybody, including the person who tried this, were so impressed that this was perhaps the deciding factor for NASA to approve a space mission which was Kepler, and Kepler was extremely efficient uh, in terms of discovering transiting exoplanet candidates. The word candidates comes in here because one Canadian astronomer pointed out that there is, even though not very statistically significant, but non-negligible possibility that there is uh, another combination of uh, effects or stars, just geometrical position on the line of sight, that can mimic the same signal that the transiting light curve measurements can present. And so because of that, what is discovered by transits is considered to be candidates, and they have to be confirmed by rejecting false positives through radial velocity measurements. I should also mention that because there is this massive observing programs like, you know, think how much data Kepler was producing, observing 140,000 stars with exposures of about two minutes. So every two minutes you get the measurements of the brightness and then analysis of this light curve. And because it was done from space and because it was the same patch on the sky over two years, there were no daily breaks. It was just one continuous set of observations. So the amount of data was so 
tremendous that NASA had to invite amateur astronomers to participate in data analysis because they, they just couldn't, couldn't manage that much data. That was interesting. They produced fairly straightforward to use tools to analyze and lots of amateur astronomers discovered and you know, they were happy and proud that they discovered exoplanets and that was fun for both parties. And then, as I also said in the introduction, there is a parallel development which is trying to characterize the planets, so trying to understand what are the physical conditions on the surface on these planets. I shouldn't say the surface, because some planets don't have surface. But what we discovered was that, actually, from the discovery, in particular, if you have both transit measurements and radio velocity measurements, you can tell something about the surface gravity on the planet and also its mean density. And so that can tell you if a planet is a gas giant, it can tell you also if the planet most likely has iron core like the Earth and probably because of that, the hard surface. And so we started to be able to classify the planets Plus, we know the distance between the planet and the star, so we know how much energy the planet receives from its parent star. And so we could start thinking about physical conditions in terms of the amount of energy, so the equilibrium temperature on the surface of the planet, also the possibility if atmosphere is present to have average temperature variation, which are not too large and which are compatible with liquid water. So these are the prerequisites uh, of any organic chemistry and biological activity as we know it. And so that's the concept of habitability that started to come up in the last 15 years or so. And definitely in the last few years, there were lots of advances in that direction. We discovered and could characterize chemical composition of giant planets. We could tell that they are not dissimilar from, for example, Jupiter and Saturn in our solar system. But we still don't have a single Earth-like planet for which we have detected an atmosphere. So that's something that should come very soon. Exciting. We're waiting for that. We mentioned the number 6,000 and that it's really that they're candidates. So how many are there right now and how many candidates do we have? We have about 4,400 confirmed exoplanets. Out of these, there are nearly a couple thousand systems where there is more than one exoplanet. So planetary systems, more like what we see in the solar system, not a single planet. It does mean that in the systems where single planet was discovered, there are no other planets, but they are not discovered yet. And then there is another nearly 3,000 candidates. Well, not quite 3,000, but yeah. Some of these candidates will stay candidates forever because they are too far away and too faint. So on one hand, it's hard to impossible to make radio velocity confirmation. And then motivation is not particularly strong because they are too far away. As you said in the beginning, we can't go there anyway. <laughs> I think by now everybody has gotten the impression that doing all these experiments and observations, you collect a lot of data. And you already said that hobby astronomers were also invited to analyze this and help out. So how do you do this? 
how do you make sense out of this big data? So how do you go from that to an actual result, so to say? So there are two approaches that are sort of moving towards each other. One is trying to do statistical analysis. So for example, by now, because we have a fair number of discoveries already, we can tell that the probability for a star to host a planet increases with decreasing mass of the star. So small stars tend to have more planets, more frequently have planets, to the point that uh, more than a half of M dwarfs, so cool and small stars, have planets. For the solar type stars, about 30%, at least that's our statistics is showing. So it's just statistics on what we have discovered. On the other hand, we can start from our improved and modified theories of planet formation, improved because of the discovery of the exoplanets. And based on this theory, we can generate the prediction for what the distribution of planets should be around different stars in our galaxy. And we can do the whole galaxy, we can do the solar neighborhood. And then comparing what comes from the observations and what comes from these theoretical models, we can detect the selection effects because our detection methods are still blind to some types of planets. So for example, we don't know of any analog to the solar system. The reason is fairly simple. If we take giant planets, they have significant effect on radial velocity of the sun. But the problem is that they are so far away that chances to see them in transit in another planetary system are very small, really slim. And also their orbital period is such, if we're talking about Jupiter, that we would need to look for over 20 years follow those planets. And so we're just approaching this baseline to detect possible Jupiter on Jupiter kind of orbit. As for the Earth, the Earth is sufficiently far away and is sufficiently low mass compared to the Sun that the effect on the Sun is about 10 centimeters per second. And so we still need another generation of instrument and long baseline of observations to detect uh, such systems. So that's an example of selection effect. There are some other selection effects. And so from the statistics and modeling and comparison and the analysis of this huge amount of data, one thing that came out and that is directly relevant to my research is that it's actually beneficial to look for habitable planets around low mass stars, stars which are significantly smaller and cooler than the sun, so-called M dwarfs simply because there the detection is easy. The habitable zones, uh, the, the distance from the star, where the planet will receive a comparable amount of energy as the Earth from the Sun. So those distances are much smaller, and that means all the periods are smaller, and so it's easier to discover. Not to mention that such systems are much more numerous. We 
talked a little bit about the development of instruments also, and you have been involved in the development of the very large telescope in, in Chile. Can you tell us a little bit more about this telescope? What can it do? It's not a telescope. The telescopes are already there. These are four eight-meter telescopes in observatory Sierra Paranal in northern Chile. And so in the last seven years, maybe eight, we actually built an instrument uh, which was initially masqueraded as upgrade, but in the end it turned out to be a completely new instrument for one of these eight-meter telescopes. The instrument is called Cryres Plus, and uh, it stands for cryogenic high-resolution spectrograph working in the infrared domain. So the purpose of this instrument is to detect atmospheres around Earth-sized planets. Because if we don't know about the existence of the atmospheres, if we don't know chemical composition of those atmospheres and their thickness, we will never be able to tell exactly the conditions, the physical conditions on the surface of those planets, because the atmosphere plays a crucial role in energy balance. And so the equilibrium temperature on the surface depends strongly on the presence and properties of the atmosphere. For example, if we remove the atmosphere from the Earth, then the equilibrium temperature on the surface of the Earth will be below freezing. And so all water reservoirs on Earth will will just freeze all the way. And so there is no possibility for life. And so that's the purpose of this instrument to make this next step, which is crucial for us to eventually model the climate on those exoplanets and then uh, decide if this climate is uh, capable of supporting life on those planets or not. So the instrument was delivered in the beginning of last year, but then because of the corona, the observatory was closed, and so we had to delay our first science observations until this year. And so official science observations will start 1st of October this year, but we already have a possibility to do some science in two weeks' time, the first time, and then again in August there will be another possibility. So I'm looking forward to, you know, after spending so much time building the hardware and testing it and verifying and moving to Chile and then installing on the telescope and testing again, finally do research with this instrument. I can imagine. So your work has been influenced quite a lot the past year by the coronavirus pandemic then? Yes, it was unfortunate. Also, the timing was really unfortunate. So this project includes four partners, two in Germany, one in Italy, and us. We are one of the major partners. We took care of the half of the budget of this instrument and quite a bit of contribution in terms of uh, different subsystems and data reduction software, things like that. And so in the beginning, when you know, people were doing their work packages in different partner institutions, maybe Corona will not affect us that much. But now when it was the assembly phase and uh, moving it around and testing, it was a severe hit. So I think we, we probably lost a year and a half because of that. How many people does it take to operate the equipment? It's fairly automated. There is a control system that contains several layers and it's kind of self-aware in the sense that if something goes wrong at lower level, uh, the upper level of software is informed and 
it prevents any changes that may lead to a damage. So in principle, if you know what you're doing, it takes just one person to operate it. But normally, we prefer to have a person in Chile who has kind of immediate view on the conditions and all parts that are perhaps not directly related to the instrument, like earthquakes or something. And then a person elsewhere could be also in Chile or it could be in Europe. So currently we're doing observations. We did already two test runs this year. Basically, we have a headquarters in outside Munich where there is a copy of control center similar to what we have in Chile. And then we can just remotely access this control center. Yeah, last time I observed from home. So you can work from home also. Well, yeah, there is person in Chile still. Yes, but uh, yeah. Maybe you should lock in a PhD student there. You know. uh, no, it takes somewhat uh, more professional and more responsible technical stuff there. So now in two weeks time, you can start uh, an experiment. You can actually start doing some science there. So what will happen in two weeks? What will you do? So in two weeks, there is uh, one subsystem of the instrument that haven't been tested yet. And so we're going to test it. But because it's a relatively small subsystem, we're going to try to see how our instrument performs with the actual science target. Officially, we cannot use this time for the science. So we are assessing performance of the instrument in connection to our science target. But it will be interesting to know what we're going to get is matching our expectations. It will take some time for us to collect enough data to publish the answer to the question if those planets that we're going to observe have atmosphere or not. And maybe some of them will not have an atmosphere and some of them will. We don't know. We estimate that for some of the targets which are the most interesting, it will take two years to accumulate the data and then maybe another year or so for the analysis. Currently, our short list of candidates for the summer period in Chile, which is winter period here, contains only six planets. It's not many. Eight-meter telescope is not big enough for getting thousands of candidates. But there is another one. The European Astronomical Community is building a, a new telescope, which is called Extremely Large, that will have a mirror of 39 meter in diameter. It's bigger than this house where we're sitting now. This will be ready in 2027. And so this telescope would be able to look for atmospheres around much more stars and around much more planets of very interesting properties. But until then, we have no competition. We are the best instrument there is. I already mentioned that the instrument works in the infrared. And that's because the interesting molecules in uh, planetary atmospheres have their spectral features, spectral lines in the infrared domain, such as water vapor, methane, carbon dioxide, ozone, and other interesting molecules. Some of them are directly related to biological activity on Earth. And so if detected, we would be able to speculate about the possibilities. I'm looking forward to a lot of exciting news there. So you mentioned the six targets that you're going to look at during the winter time. How do you choose the targets that you're going to look at? Yeah, out of 4,000, 
well, of course, there are simple criteria, like targets should be well visible from the latitude where the observatory is, and the targets should be sufficiently bright that we can detect enough signal for the analysis during the transit. All those systems are transiting, which also restrict the number of targets, and our observations are planned during transits. So we're going to take the spectra during transit, looking for the light, stellar light that passed on the way to us through the atmosphere of the planet. That's how we're going to see if there is a planet, look at different wavelengths, I see if there is a variation of this blocking factor, if the atmosphere is more transparent in one wavelength and uh, less transparent in the other wavelength. So that's the general idea. But we still ended up with something like 100 targets. And so then we had to take into account the properties of the instrument, its performance or variation of performance as a function of wavelengths. And so it turns out that the whole process of selection was complex enough that we have two papers. One is soon going to be submitted just on selection of targets. So it's all science by itself. And then once you start your observations, at what point will you have this moment that you say, we found something, there's something to look at? Well, we have kind of easier targets and more difficult targets. Of course, the more difficult targets are the most interesting ones. So probably for the easier targets, we will have an answer within half a year, eight months from the start. So from 1st of October. For the most difficult targets, as I said, before, we would probably need three years, so two years of observation, one year of analysis. That's our current understanding, and uh, what we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time should confirm that, or maybe I will have to change a little bit my estimates. But it's soon. It's still within a few years. Once you've found an inhabitable planet, what are the next steps? What happens then? Okay, so you put two steps in one. The first thing which will happen is that if we discover atmospheres, then we're going to do the next step, which will be modeling climate on this atmosphere. And we have expertise in the house. We're also collaborating with NASA on that to create a climate model, which is based on the actual measurements. So on the orbital parameters of the planet, on the mean density, radius, and surface gravity of the planet, and on the properties of the atmosphere. So once we have a climate, we can say something about habitability, because only then we can say if it's habitable. The step after that, I don't know. I haven't thought about it seriously, but clearly this will be like a major target for various follow-up research and anything from SETI focusing on following the radio background coming from this direction, to maybe focusing on specific isotopic ratios in the atmosphere that could be indicative of actual biological activity. We know that carbon-12, carbon-13 in Earth atmosphere, this ratio is directly affected by photosynthesis and other biological activities. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe it's for younger generation to focus on. That's actually a question I have. We have all these technical developments and they have been really, there has been a lot of things happening in the last decades. 
So what is your advice to young scientists who are entering the field or thinking about going into this direction? There's plenty of work. There's plenty of opportunity. One doesn't have to be shy and try to connect to research early in student years. And many universities offer this opportunity. And having hands-on experience with actual observations is exciting and uh, much more motivating. But for students that have kind of more theoretically inclined interests, there is also plenty of work here. Because data interpretation requires models. Climate modeling is a big thing by itself. And then connecting biological activities with the properties of the atmosphere is also a big field, which is far from being well understood. And the models which are used there are fairly primitive, I would say. They will require some significant development. Yeah, so you also need a lot of different competences and disciplines in this area. Absolutely. Which brings us to the SCAS, I guess. Exactly. This brings us to the multidisciplinary environment at SCAS and the natural science program also here. So you're responsible for this theme, exoplanets and life on other planets within the natural science program here at SCAS. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit more about this program? This program, as other natural science programs, were the first attempt, the first excursion of SCAS into the direction of natural sciences, which is quite different from humanities. There are different traditions and different style of work. But I think in the end, when all four programs were in operation for some time, we start seeing that the opportunities and the interest of people participating in these programs to talk to each other and try to explain what they are doing to, for example, between astronomers and biologists, between astronomers and geoscientists are numerous and there are plenty of questions and plenty of misunderstanding that need to be clarified and it goes in all possible directions. So it's not just astronomers that are curious about what's going on in other disciplines, but also the other way around. You know, biologists would be very interested in or are very interested in see what kind of development and history of biological evolution can happen if the conditions are different. They are not dramatically different, perhaps, but they are different. And what would happen? How the evolution will adapt? Thinking about it and trying to simulate this is incredibly interesting. You know, geosciences are also quite relevant here. One thing that we still don't know about exoplanets is the ratio between land and water. And so there are some indications that some of the low mass planets may actually be ocean worlds with maybe few islands, but essentially the whole surface is dominated by a single massive ocean, perhaps covered with ice in the polar regions. But what effect will that have on both biological evolution, but also on geological evolution. So I think from that perspective, this experience of multidisciplinary program in natural sciences that SCAS initiated is extremely unique. And I hope uh, it will continue in the future. I think it was very rewarding to all participants. I can just add that the natural science program at SCAS includes four themes. 
Theoretical Biologies, Human Brains and Societies, Measurable Man and Exoplanets and Biological Activities on Other Worlds. And some of these themes have been featured in previous episodes of SCUS Talks. And then you also have all the other disciplines around you, like humanities, social sciences, yeah. and so on. What do you think about that kind of exchange and contact? Well, we already discussed in the beginning that, as an example, a topic of exoplanet has also very serious philosophical aspects and uh, ethical aspects and even uh, environmental aspects that are all present in the activities supported by SCUS. Yes, these aspects need to be considered, need to be thought about, and maybe formulated in such a way that many people will be invited to think about it. I guess thinking is sort of a key word here, and also having the time and environment to to think and reflect. Yes, which is uh, frequently not possible when you go through the routine. Is there something that you would like to add? about your own research or about anything else? Well, I wish the uh, overall situation where I am now in terms of my professional career would happen like 20 years ago, but this only means that there is plenty of opportunity for young people to come in and that would be the right time to join this exciting development in exoplanet research. That's my main message. Thank you very much for joining me on SCAS Talks and telling me and our listeners more about your exciting research. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode in the theme Life in Outer Space, and I have talked to Nikolai Piskunov, professor at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Uppsala University. His specialty is astronomy, and he is associated to SCAS by being responsible for the theme Exoplanets and Biological Activities on Other Worlds within the Natural Science Program here at SCAS. In the next episode, we continue our journey to outer space and will learn more about nickel as a catalyst for the building blocks of life from Anna Neubeck. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Previously, in episode number 17, we have heard more about cosmic origins and life on exoplanets from Martin Salian. Listen to this episode as well if you want to know more about the search for habitable worlds and life on other planets. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Nikolai Piskunov once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now!